0: Sedations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Jesse Prince, distinguished professor of philosophy at the City University of New York Graduate Center, and he's here to talk to us about experimental philosophy. Jesse Prince, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So, I guess the obvious question to begin with is, what is experimental philosophy?
1: At the most general level, experimental philosophy is intended to be continuous with philosophy, as it's always been understood, which is an inquiry into some of the most profound and often conceptual questions uh, that human beings have been able to devise. And traditionally, philosophy has posed questions, but answered them using methods that are very different from the sciences, characteristically reflection from an armchair. That is, you, you reason about a problem until you arrive at a solution, a little bit like mathematics, maybe. But experimental philosophy recognizes that the questions that philosophers have traditionally posed are also ones that could be investigated using methods that emerged in the millennia since the birth of philosophy, including the methods of the sciences. And in particular, the social sciences and the science of psychology have emerged at the forefront of new methods available for answering traditionally philosophical questions.
0: So maybe we could begin with an example of let's say a traditional philosophical problem and talk about both the more traditional way of tackling that problem and this new method of tackling it using the new methods of psychology and the social sciences.
1: One example might be free will, which has uh, dogged philosophers for a uh, very long time, and I think the standard view if it had to be characterized within philosophy is that we should try and find a way to recognize that behavior is in a certain way caused while also finding some place for freedom. And Within that framework, which sounds a bit paradoxical at first, the view that has emerged in philosophy is called compatibilism. It says people are simultaneously free and determined. Now, to make that seemingly contradictory statement work, what you need to do is look at all of the determined actions that human beings participate in and identify some subset which can be privileged with the honorific label free. Of the determined actions, these are the privileged ones that we consider actions for which people can be held responsible or accountable or credited, praised, and also blamed. The way philosophers argue for compatibilism is typically to pump intuitions, that is to try and get listeners to recognize that if you consider what we mean by the concept of freedom, it is actually compatible with our concept of also being externally or sometimes internally caused. Now, that claim, the claim that freedom and determinism are conceptually compatible, is one that exploits the audience's willingness to participate in philosophical reflection of a certain kind. The standard method would be to generate something like a thought experiment, a hypothetical scenario, where, once described, people would willingly come on board and say, yes, I guess that really is a case of freedom, even though we've presupposed that the actions have been in some way caused. What experimental philosophers try and do is test whether those intuitions are really robust, whether they're shared, and whether they arise consistently across a range of different thought experiments. Where philosophers are inclined to give answers based on their own theoretical backgrounds, the experiments in experimental philosophy, the thought experiments they use, which are culled from traditional philosophy, are given to ordinary, untrained lay folk who don't necessarily have any philosophical predilections or prior theoretical commitments. What the experimentalists have found is that small variations in classic philosophical thought experiments can elicit entirely different intuitions. That is, you can get a person to have a compatibilist intuition under one set of circumstances, then make a small change in your thought experiment and have them declare that compatibilism is false and in fact that human behavior or behavior of some hypothetical agents is fully determined. So the diagnosis of people engaging in this kind of research is that our own intuitions as professional philosophers may be biased by subtle features of the way we're presenting our cases and by identifying the underlying psychological biases that lead us to one position or another we can diagnose why certain philosophers have ended up with one view on the question of free will and others have ended up with the opposing view.
2: The way you're presenting it, experimental philosophy is a kind of wake-up call to the discipline. It's telling philosophers, you've spent too long sitting in your armchairs, thinking that your own intuitions reflect just what any ordinary person would think. In fact, that's not the case. And when we take your thought experiments or variations on them to people out there in the world and use rigorous methods of the kind that are used in psychology, we get a whole range of results that might not be comfortable for you. It looks now like your arguments might not go through in the way that you want. One interesting thing that you said was that we might think on the basis of what experimental philosophy has shown that philosophers intuitions are biased in some way that suggests that there's something about practicing philosophy which actually takes us further away from the right way of thinking about certain situations rather than closer to it and that might seem to some people like an odd thought surely the idea of doing philosophy is that we get better at thinking about these things so rather than being biased about thought experiments philosophers actually have more insight into them. So we shouldn't regard philosophers as biased, we should regard them as specialists in a certain way. So how would the defender of experimental philosophy respond to that?
1: Well, I think the specialness of philosophy is not lost by the introduction of new methods. There are strands within experimental philosophy that are revolutionary in tenor, which is to say their, their intention is to undermine philosophical methodology as we know it. There are others who are using experimental philosophy as a supplement or an addition to old philosophical methods. Now, if you take that supplement view, you could think of it as one of two things. It could just be a methodology that runs alongside philosophy in tandem as another way of testing philosophical hypotheses. And on this version... Having the scientific method at philosophy's side is a little bit like having multiple sciences, say psychology, brain science, anthropology, sociology, all asking the same questions. You can triangulate on the truth by using multiple methods. If your observations come out the same in each way, then you get further confirmation. In that way, experimental philosophy can be a supplement. But there's another form of supplementation. Which comes from the recognition that philosophy and science are not at odds. They're not fundamentally different. In fact, they are in some way fundamentally bound. If you think about science, science first proceeds by posing a question. Now, sometimes laboratory research can lead people to discover new questions, but typically questions arise before the science has been done. People may wonder what is time? They may wonder what determines human behavior? They may wonder how do we make moral judgments? They may wonder, how is perception related to conceiving the world, and so on? What's the nature of language? When they pose these questions, they're doing what philosophers have always done. They're stepping back and asking things that would deepen our understanding of who we are. Now, in pursuing those questions scientifically, you're constructing something like an argument. You're figuring out what observations could be arrived at that would lead to a particular conclusion. To construct an experiment is to figure out what premises would support a conclusion, and then to see whether those premises are true. Those same methods of argument construction are the stock and trade of philosophical methodology. Good science conforms to the strictures of rationality that philosophers have been in a privileged place to articulate and explore. Very often scientists can be criticized for not using good reasoning, and philosophy can come in as a handmaiden to science and correct the methods. But finally, and maybe most importantly, There's a decision to make once you've done your experiment about what it all means. How do we interpret these data? And that move from data to theory, from observation to conclusion, is fundamentally a philosophical task. The conclusion always outstrips what we've observed. It's a generalization or extension or extrapolation. And that big picture that we arrive at after collecting several observations together is what philosophers have always done, it's what philosophical training makes us good at. So I think the best way to see experimental methods in philosophy is not even as two parallel rivers, but as one intermixed stream working together to arrive at conclusions to shared questions.
2: So you might say we don't need to see experimental philosophy as a replacement for traditional philosophy. It's not trying to say that there has been something fundamentally wrong with the way we've carried on this discipline for years and years. Rather, it's a supplement to it. There's always going to be a place for the kind of philosophy that can't be done using experimental methods, that has to work out what it thinks about the data that's collected. But what about if someone raised the following kind of objection, that experimental methods, scientific methods are all well and good, but what experimental philosophers are doing is not using experimental methods to investigate the questions they've always been interested in, such as free will. We're not doing experiments on free will. We're doing experiments to determine what people think about free will. So the data that we get back is not data about freedom or about determinism. It's data about what people say normally about freedom and determinism. And someone of a traditional mindset, someone maybe operating in the spirit of Descartes or Socrates, might want to say, well, good grief, what people think about freedom or what people think about determinism is probably hopelessly confused. That's why we do philosophy. The use of experiment here is quite different from how it would be in a science. The criticism might be, well, look, what it is that you're... Collecting data on, that's to say, people's pre theoretical thoughts about things like freedom and determinism, are just what philosophy is trying to get people away from. We want to make people think better. That certainly seems to be a way that philosophers have thought about the business of philosophy. Would you say that experimental philosophy constitutes a challenge to that way of thinking?
1: Let me answer by revisiting the free will question because I think it speaks to the issue. Well, I said before that one of the things philosophy can do is it can go from data to theory. Well, we've had for a long time scientific theories that tell us that human behavior is either fully determined by the causal structure of the physical matter that makes up human bodies and other physical bodies in the universe, or perhaps indeterminate if something like quantum theory is right. And if the scientific picture gives us a story according to which human behavior is either random or fully caused we're left wondering whether freedom could possibly exist. Now, when you raise that question in light of the science, you're going beyond the data. You're trying to construct a theory. The late philosopher Wilfred Sellers had the view that what we should be trying to do is map a scientific picture of reality, what he called the scientific image, onto what he called the manifest image, which is our ordinary common sense understanding of the world. So once we get a scientific description of reality, the description given to us by physics, for example, and we have to make a decision, does this confirm or disconfirm our manifest image according to which human behavior is free? That's the point at which philosophy can step in. That's the point at which theory construction begins and the data give out. Now, on this particular question, what experimental philosophy has done is it's helped us to understand the process by which we go from data to theory. And in particular, one of the relevant findings, this is from Joshua Nob and Sean Nichols, is that we tend to be more inclined to believe in freedom when the stakes are high. So, for example, if you're told about a universe, a hypothetical universe, where every single human action is fully determined from the very start of time by the laws of physics and the initial configuration of matter in the universe such that if some person, Fred, chooses to eat a tuna fish sandwich at 2 p.m. on a certain Wednesday, that event had to occur. It was determined by physics that that event would occur. Then people are asked, was Fred responsible for eating his sandwich? Was he free in eating his sandwich? Can he be credited for this action? And people are inclined to say no. But suppose instead of being told about Fred, you're told about Frank, who on the same Tuesday didn't eat a tuna fish sandwich, but instead killed his wife with an axe. And he did this because he was having an affair with his secretary and thought that it would be convenient to get rid of his spouse so he could go on having this relationship. Now, people have been given the same setup. They know the universe is working according to these laws of physics that fully cause every human action. But when presented with this scenario, people are inclined to say that this other character, the axe murderer, was free, acted in a way that can be counted as a Uh, act of free will that should be punished and the perpetrator should be held responsible. What this suggests is that when we reason about the data, when we go from data to theory, we're subject to certain biases. Now it's a further step to say which of these is the biased answer and which is the correct answer. But if we discover that our intuitions are being shaped by a desire to punish, then we can at least recognize that we can improve thought, we can improve theory construction, by being sensitive to the conditions under which we're likely to draw one inference from a set of data and conditions under which we're likely to draw the opposite uh, inference. So I think there is a sense in which psychology in this particular example is functioning very much like philosophy in that it's trying to help us reason better, trying to help us think better.
0: So we have two thought experiments, and we've discovered that, depending on exactly what terms we couch those thought experiments in, people end up having different intuitions about whether the imagined characters in these thought experiments are responsible for their actions. It turns out that if the action is very momentous, then our tendency is to say that the person is responsible for their action. If the action is inconsequential, it seems that our tendency is to say that the person is not responsible. So where do we go from there? Is there a way that we can refine our future thought experiments so as to take that into account? What would, you know, version two of a philosophical investigation into the question of free will look like once we've come across those results?
1: I think this is a nice place where traditional philosophical concerns and methods can start to play a role. What we get out of experimental philosophy in this case is just one more data point. We had already gotten the knowledge from physics that human behavior is causally affected by our environment in certain ways. But now we get this further bit of information, which is about human psychology, which tells us that we're likely to draw certain kinds of conclusions from, uh, in this case, the confluence of information from physics and certain moral concerns, concerns about the desirability of holding somebody responsible or accountable for their actions. Now, once we have that, we are in a position to do what philosophers have always done, which is to settle on what all this means, to adjudicate between competing options. And it seems to me one option is to say all intuitions about freedom are subject to bias in a way that can't be resolved, so we should give up on the traditional philosophical disputes about free will and just let the science, say the science of physics, decide it. Another strategy is to say let's come up with a principled reason for saying which of these two intuitions is the biased one. If we judge that our desire to punish is a source of bias that prevents us from considering the original conditions laid out in the thought experiment, we might use these results to actually defend incompatibilism, to defend a determinist theory according to which the traditional philosophical view that says we are free despite being determined, the compatibilist position, is mistaken, that compatibilism is an illusion that's fobbed off on us by a desire to punish. A third option is to say that this philosophical debate is one that is, in some sense, impossible to resolve. There is a tradition in philosophy associated with people like Ryle and Wittgenstein, where philosophical dilemmas that have occupied people in our profession for millennia were held under the microscope, and it was discovered that competing theories within philosophy are actually the result of certain kinds of confusions or misuse of ordinary concepts, or perhaps the competing views are not, in fact, incompatible at all, that they're just different manners of speaking. Maybe we mean two different things by freedom, and those two concepts get engaged depending on the way the scenario is structured. So I think the full range of different philosophical interpretations is available in light of these kinds of findings. But they can be used to argue for one traditional philosophical theory over another. They're a new data point to drive a philosophical conclusion.
2: So your last comment that one of the conclusions that we might draw from experimental philosophy is that many of our philosophical arguments are influenced not just by purely rational considerations but for example a desire to punish very unphilosophical motivations that remark reminded me of Nietzsche who's someone who some years ago accused philosophers of a very similar thing that's to say occupying certain philosophical positions not out of a pure rational desire for the truth but in fact out of rather baser motivations so do you think that's a fair comparison to draw? Is there a historical basis there for experimental philosophy in the Nietzschean project of genealogy?
1: I think there is. I think there's a continuity between at least one thread in experimental philosophy and, and Nietzsche's approach. Uh, there are experimental philosophers who want to diagnose philosophical intuitions. They want to figure out how the philosophical mind works. How do we arrive at the conclusions we do in constructing philosophical theories? And sometimes with a critical edge, they want to show that we're drawing conclusions not based on reason, but on some kind of bias. Now, Nietzsche's own examples of bias have a two components for them. One component is psychological and maybe more specifically emotional. So he's looking at very human motives like resentment in trying to explain our intuitions about what would be a good moral system while criticizing moral philosophy and the public morality of his time. Another factor related to this is cultural or maybe more broadly cultural and historical. So Nietzsche is recognizing that there's a kind of contingency to our intuitions that is historical in nature. We have the intuitions we do because we're located in a certain time and place in history. Now the free will thought experiments that have been used by experimental philosophy are examples of the first kind of critique. They're showing how a desire to punish is affecting intuitions about a theoretical matter, a matter that seems to be uh, metaphysical in nature and not moral in nature. But there's also work in experimental philosophy that's looking at the cultural dimension. So there is a growing group of philosophers who think that the intuitions we have as professional philosophers in the West reflect our own particular place in time and space. An example of this would be a recent study, this one is unpublished, by Stephen Stitch, John Doris, and a psychologist named Kai Peng Peng at Berkeley. They were interested in a philosophical theory called utilitarianism, an ethical theory, according to which it is permissible to sacrifice one person for the greater good. That view was articulated by Western philosophers like John Stuart Mill and met with shock and horror. For many of us, the idea that we could sacrifice one person to save others seemed absolutely abhorrent. So Mill's views got some uptake in Western thought, but they were harshly criticized as well. And the criticisms often took the form of generating a thought experiment, a hypothetical scenario, that elicited very strong anti-utilitarian intuitions. Here's an example. There is a dilemma involving a magistrate and a mob. A prisoner has been accused of committing an atrocious crime. The magistrate happens to be privy to information that proves decisively that the prisoner is innocent, but the mob thinks that the prisoner is guilty, and the mob is rioting. The riots have taken a violent turn, and as a result, people are getting killed in the riots and will continue to get killed. If the magistrate kills this innocent man, executes him, the riots will stop and many lives will be saved. Question Can we kill the innocent man in order to prevent people from dying in the riots? The Western intuition seems to be that it's impermissible to kill an innocent man, even if other people will be saved. That intuition has been enshrined in various ethical theories, including the ethical theory associated with Immanuel Kant and others. But the critics, the experimental philosophers who have criticized this, have raised the possibility that anti-utilitarian intuitions may come from Western individualism. We are so preoccupied in the West with the intrinsic dignity and integrity of each individual that trespassing against one for the greater good seems to violate the fundamental principle that drives our culture. A principle at work, for example, in modern capitalism. Their hypothesis is that the intuition might not be shared in a collectivist culture, a culture where the value of an individual is subject to that individual's role or contribution to the larger group. Many cultures in the Far East rate as being more collectivist in orientation than individualist. A large tradition in social psychology and anthropology has confirmed this, but it hasn't been applied to philosophical questions. So what this group of researchers did is they took the magistrate in the mob dilemma, gave it to Western respondents and to respondents in the Far East, in China. And what they found is that in the Far East, people tended to say it's permissible to sacrifice one for the greater good. The collective has greater value than any individual member of that collective. So we get an opposite moral intuition, an intuition that could lead to an opposing moral theory in the Far East and in the West. It's not to say that both of these cultural settings are incapable of generating enthusiasm for a wide variety of different moral theories. The utilitarian theory that I mentioned originated in Western thought. But to the extent that the theory is then subjected to a criticism based on intuitions, we need to recognize that those intuitions may have a cultural origin. So coming back to Nietzsche, there's a great continuity here in that the method being used tries to explore the possibility that some of our theories as philosophers are expressions of a cultural identity rather than a recognition of timeless truths of reason.
2: So to follow up on that point, One worry that people have had about Nietzsche's work is that it leads to an unacceptable kind of relativism or perspectivism about, say, morality, that the more you do this genealogical, exposing work of people's intuitions, the more you show that these things vary depending on which culture you're from, the less it looks like there's an answer to these questions. The more it looks like what one thinks is going to be determined by where one is from and how one's been brought up and there is no truth of the matter. There's no truth there for philosophy to discover anymore. Do you think that that's a consequence that we should be worried about, or is that something for experimental philosophers to embrace?
1: I think there's a sense in which experimental philosophy can be neutral about that question, or maybe it would be better to say can be open to the possibility of letting the data drive them to one conclusion or another. There is an important distinction to draw, though, between a descriptive relativism that says that as a matter of fact, people have fundamentally different moral values and what's sometimes called a normative or metaethical moral relativism, according to which there is, in fact, no single true morality. It's a subtle difference, but a crucial one. To say that people disagree about moral claims and can't come to agreement is not a claim about what morality demands of us. It's a claim about what we know about morality. Suppose, for example, that a divine command theory is true, that morality stems from some commandments that have been made by a supernatural agency or God. Human beings may not be privy to that divine command, or different cultures may have come to different conclusions about what God's will is, and they might be incapable of resolving those debates. But there still could be a fact of the matter of what morality demands of us, namely the divine commands, even though human beings haven't been able to settle and may never be able to settle on what those commands actually are. So it's possible that the demands of morality come apart from our beliefs about what morality demands. I think that experimental methods are very useful for establishing descriptive relativism. It's a controversial claim, even at the descriptive level, whether human beings have different moral values or not. For example, there's research in evolutionary ethics that tries to identify what values we may have innately as a species. It may be that there's some common font, some universal set of moral values that we all share in virtue of being human, and empirical methods might discover what those are. Conversely, empirical methods might discover that morality is not innate and that it's subject to cultural influences to such a great extent that we can find fundamental disagreements about basic moral values that will never be resolved. Personally, I think the preponderance of evidence supports the latter conclusion, so I'm a descriptive relativist. But I think descriptive relativism doesn't yet entail anything as strong as the normative relativism. And I think philosophical work in ethics has very often had a normative form. If you look at ethical theories that have been generated by philosophers, they often depart from what we actually believe and instead tell us what we should believe. They depart from what we actually do, what we actually praise, what we actually condemn, and tell us what we should praise and condemn. If you take the utilitarian theory that I mentioned before, John Stuart Mill knows that it's going to be an affront to intuition when he says that we should kill one person to sacrifice one person to save more others. But he thinks that intuition should just be thrown to the wind here because he thinks there are good arguments, good normative grounds for thinking that this is the better thing to do. So a lot of philosophical work in ethics says forget what our actual moral values are and recommends a better set of moral values. There's one perspective from which you can see experimental philosophy as leaving that entire normative project intact. I think there are controversies here as well. I for one think that there is a way in which the normative theories can be challenged by the discoveries of what we actually value. But it takes a tremendous amount of work, and it's really fundamentally philosophical work, to show that normative ethics is in any way touched by what we discover about human values doing psychology or anthropology.
0: Based on the examples that we've discussed so far, I'm getting the sense that the focus of experimental philosophy is metaphilosophical, by which I mean the goal is to think about how best to do philosophy in new ways, so that it turns out looking more like the philosophy of philosophy, rather than the philosophy of art or the philosophy of math or the philosophy of physics. Do you think that's an accurate characterization?
1: The experimental philosophers I know best hate methodology, and they have found themselves embroiled in debates about methodology, and they end up getting invited to give addresses at conferences that are about methodology, and all they want to do is report their results and answer traditional philosophical questions. I think that there is a way in which the advent of experimental philosophy forces us to reflect on methodology, and I think that's very good. I think philosophers, for the most part, are not reflective enough about what they're doing. If you go to the sciences, they have books on methods. You have to study those textbooks when you're getting an education. A paper will be rejected from a journal if it doesn't use the prescribed methods and so on. But if you ask a philosopher, what are you doing? Is it conceptual analysis? Is it some sort of process of synthesis through reason of multiple intuitions, is it introspective psychology, is it observation of human behavior that's now being funneled into some kind of theory? All of those possibilities are plausible given what we observe in a typical philosophy paper, publication in a recent philosophy journal, but the author of those papers rarely steps back and says, this is what I'm doing here, this is how I'm arriving at these conclusions. There are appeals to intuitions, but are the intuitions linguistic items? Are they facts about how we've represented the meanings of words? Are they observations that have been made from real life of how people act and behave? Are they emotional in nature? Are they gut reactions to events that have a moral character? We really don't know. So I think to the extent that experimental philosophy has forced a meta-move, where both traditional methods and experimental methods are being interrogated for what they can deliver, will have made great progress. But I think at another level, card-carrying experimental philosophers didn't get into the business to address those kinds of questions. Some want to challenge traditional philosophy and have an interest in challenging it at a methodological level. But others were just animated by the same questions that have animated philosophers since Plato and Socrates. And they've just had the view that philosophy is first and foremost a field of questions. Philosophy identifies questions, articulates questions, asks things that probe the boundaries of what we know. Now, once you have a question before you, you can become a methodological pluralist and say, let me use any method that can help me answer this question. For example, the defining debate in the history of Western thought is arguably the debate between rationalists and empiricists. Now, rationalists claim that we have a great font of innate knowledge, and that we arrive at conclusions through the process of reasoning, and that reasoning transcends the resources given to us by our senses. That is, there's a sense in which experience of a sensory nature, vision, touch, smell, give us a distorted picture of the world, and we need reason to move beyond that. And the currency of thought, the tools by which we think, are somehow independent of the images delivered by our senses. Now, the empiricists, on the other hand, have emphasized the view that thinking has a sensory basis, that there's a continuity between how we reason and how we perceive. They also emphasize learning and argue against innate knowledge. The mind, as it's classically put in a somewhat unfortunate metaphor, is a blank slate waiting to receive information from our sensory input systems. Now, philosophers have tried to decide between rationalism and empiricism by reflecting, Hume, for example, a classic empiricist, draws the conclusion that we think in sensory images by introspection. He says, when I look into my own mind, I see nothing but pictures, nothing but recorded sounds of the world I inhabit. Rationalist opponents introspect and come to other conclusions. They say we can have thoughts that don't depend on imagery, thoughts that transcend images. Descartes says we can conceive of a geometrical figure that has a thousand sides and conceive of a figure that has 999 size, even though a mental image of the two would be indistinguishable. So when you find these philosophical debates and philosophical theories, rationalism versus empiricism, you can continue to use the methods of introspection that have been important to people like Hume and Descartes, and you can also supplement them. And I think the experimental philosophers think that when we take a new science like, say, cognitive neuroscience or a relatively new science like cognitive psychology and apply these to the old debates, we'll actually make some progress. To that extent, they're not trying to get into the ring and duke out the question of what counts as legitimate methodology. They're simply trying to answer the questions that philosophers have always been trying to answer. Do we think in pictures, or do we think in concepts that transcend the pictorial?
0: Jesse Prince, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Matt. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations... You may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.